0: Keep on keeping that what you love, and you'll find that someday soon enough. You will rise up, rise up. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of. Underdog. Today, I am beyond honored to have the truly incredible Reggie Selma here with me today. For those of you who don't know Reggie, Reggie is a former legendary CNN photojournalist who's just out of this world incredible and has the most incredible stories. He grew up in the civil rights era and just has the most contagious energy of anyone that I think I've ever met in my life. So, Reggie, with all ado, I welcome you today to The Underdog Show. How are you, my friend? I am doing so well. Pam, thank you for that
1: intro. And I feel the same positive energy from you. I think you're amazing. You have a wonderful story. And I'm just so honored to be here today.
0: I'm so honored to have you. You have so many stories. And last time we talked, it was just like, I felt like I was talking to an uncle of mine, like somewhere. Like it was just so awesome. And you have so many amazing stories. And I can't wait to get into it. But the first one I'll start off with is basically what or where inspired you to where you are today?
1: Well, my story always starts with my family. Uh, My mom and dad were my heroes. As you alluded, I grew up in the civil rights movement. I was a child of the civil rights movement. It's uh, very ironic. Uh, We're talking today. Uh, Yesterday was the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, where uh, Alabama state troopers met peaceful Black protesters actually marching to register to vote, if you can imagine that. And uh, I was only eight years old. It was the day before my birthday, in fact. And uh, our church, my father was a Baptist minister and our church was a mile and a half from this this vicious attack. And as uh, word spread uh, through our community of this attack, it just emboldened my parents and my my older brother Uh, I can remember that uh, my parents always said, never let anyone make you feel inferior, and we're going to win this battle, and we're going to win it fair and square, and growing up in that kind of household with that support and love, uh, I couldn't fail. I I just had to uh, follow in my parents' footsteps. Uh, As I said, my dad was a preacher, and my mom was, was a saint. She told me she loved me every single day of my life. You can imagine uh, hearing that every day. Of course, when I was bad, I don't think I heard it right away. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my parents always strive to get a great education, and the world uh, is your ticket. Uh, so, with that in mind, I just knew that my mission would be trying to inspire people, trying to uplift people. And uh, believe it or not, I did that through my photography at CNN. I started a local. TV station in my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama for five years. And uh, we all have that inner voice when we know it's time to move on from another city, perhaps your hometown or a job or whatever, or even a relationship. And five years doing local news, covering Alabama football and politics and these things really uh, taught me how to to cover news. Uh, I was an intern, I started as an intern, uh, Miles College, historically black, college there in Birmingham uh, communications department. And like I said, uh, five years, it was time to move on. And uh, as fate would have it, uh, one of my college classmates told me about her uncle, who was a legendary cameraman at Washington, DC at NBC. So I called him and we uh, met over the phone and cameraman, they can tell you how great they are, but they you have to show it. So I sent him a videotape of my, my work in Birmingham and Harry Davis, late, great Harry Davis was his name. And he said, Reggie, I tell you, you can shoot, man. You're a great photographer, but there are no openings at NBC Washington, but there's a brand new cable network called CMN. And I said, CMN? He said, that doesn't sound right. And I said, you mean CNN? He said, that's it. CNN was so new. He didn't, how to describe it. So he put in a word for me, a gentleman named Sheldon Levy, that he worked with uh, when they both worked in New York. And here I am. I was the uh, first African-American cameraman assigned to the White House in 1982. Just had that inner drive to just show people what was going on through my lens. I always looked at myself as their voice, their eyes, and their ears, because I was recording history. It wasn't just for me. Anytime I put my eye to that viewfinder, I always envision a family in Arkansas or California or New Mexico watching my footage being informed and enlightened. It just meant the world to me. I never took it lightly. It was always an honor, especially when I was uh, on the road with the presidents that I covered.
0: That's incredible. You've had such an amazing journey at CNN too, and and have run into some of the biggest names in history. And you told me about a few of them. (laughs) I have to ask you again, because they were so amazing. Now, you had mentioned that before you had run into the Dalai Lama. So tell me that story. How did that shake out?
1: meeting him when you're in the presence of his holiness, you feel holy. (laughs) Even if you're not religious, the aura that he has is such a peaceful energy, peace and love. Mm. And we were doing this three-camera shoot interview uh, when he came to Washington probably 20 years ago. Wolf Blitzer, our anchor, was going to do the interview, and we were going to do it at a downtown hotel, The Four Seasons. And those are some of my favorite interviews. Instead of doing it in a studio, we Uh, rent a suite. We take out, well, we have the staff take out all the the furniture and we turn this suite into a portable TV studio. Magical. I've worked with some of the best technicians. So we're setting up and one of his representatives comes and says the the Dalai Lama is walking down the hall. So we all stand and he comes in. He just puts everybody at ease. And one of my colleagues puts the mic on. him, and we do a very great interview and I just feel like I'm just ingesting all this great knowledge. So when the interview ended, he wanted to thank us all and wish us well. And there's a a group shot that he wanted to take as well. And he says to me, what do you think? And I'm thinking, wow, he's addressing me like, what do I think? Is he asking me about world peace or what's the meaning of life? So I'm starting to get a little nervous and I'm starting to sweat. (laughs) And he asks again, what do you think? And I can feel like every eye is on me like, I am tongue tied. How many times are you going to get to talk to the Dalai Lama? So I'm just nervous. And he says it again, but on closer inspection, he raises up his ceremonial robe and he's pointing at the floor. And I look down and he says, I just bought my first pair of Chuck Taylor red high top sneakers. What do you (laughs) think? (laughs) (laughs) So we all laughed and I, I said, they're great. I mean, I wore those as a kid, and I think what he was doing was just showing that he's a, a person, he's a humble person. I didn't have to try to think of the meaning of life. He's trying to show me a pair of Converse sneakers.
0: <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Oh my gosh. And then another one was Mother Teresa. You ran into the saint herself. She
1: and I- is a saint. This was President Reagan bestowed on her the Medal of Freedom, the highest award you can give a civilian. And it was a beautiful ceremony in the Rose Garden. First Lady Nancy Reagan was there, and I filmed it. And uh, it's very emotional for her. You could you could see it in her face. So after this grand ceremony was over, and the next assignment for the camera crews and the White House press corps, we were going to film her departure with the band. And President Reagan and First Lady Nancy were all going to be there and risk her off on a limousine a motorcade with the security. And I'd done that many times. So Now it's a break. It's a two hour break or so. So, my producer says, Reggie, why don't you go to lunch? You know what you have to do when you come back. Just get ready for her departure. So, I go and have a a nice lunch. And an hour or so later, I'm walking down the White House driveway, heading towards the West Wing. And I see this little old lady (laughs) walking out of the door of the West Wing. And that's the door where you always see the Marine standing. When the president's in the Oval Office, the Marine is always at guard at this door. So, I say to myself, that little old lady looks like Mother Teresa. And I'm thinking it can't be because she's all by herself. There's no entourage, no security. So I get closer to her and it is Mother Teresa. And she walks right over to me and she puts her hand on my arm and she says, can you tell me how to get out of this place? <laughs> and I say, what, what do you mean? You're, you're Mother Teresa. You, where's your entourage? She says, what entourage? I say your People. And she says, what, people? And I feel like I can't say no to Mother Teresa. So she puts her arm in my arm and we start walking down the driveway because she's saying, that's Pennsylvania Avenue, isn't it? Isn't that the way out? And I said, yes, ma'am. So here I am walking arm in arm with Mother Teresa. And it only lasts for about 30 seconds because now everybody sees Mother Teresa out of place. And my other colleagues are getting their cameras and everybody, the reporters are getting their pins and pads and they're circling her like paparazzi and they're shouting questions at her. And of course I had to let my arm go and grab my camera. Now they're all circling her and I can see people from the White House press room running like she's escaped. So they come and they kind of part the waters and they get between us and go, Mother Teresa, what are you doing? You, We got a big ceremony for you, you can't go. And she's like, all right, all right. So they so they take her back in like they're her. This is her grandmother. Like your grandmother got away from you or something, right? So an hour later, as we're filming the departure from the uh, the South Lawn and the band and the president and the first lady saying goodbye, and all of us camera crew members, we kind of look at each other and we say, "This might be the official departure, but what Reggie did was a lot more fun." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh. That is hilarious. Cause that's, you know, she's all been in and I'm all been in too. And I know, yeah. I know like my grandmothers, when they say they want to go, they, they want to go. go. <laughs> so like the <laughs> fact that she tried to get away is so hilarious. Oh once again,
1: God. another person who I think in 2014 was named a saint. Once again, she doesn't care about all that. She wants to get out so she can go finish saving the world. That's what she <laughs> wants to do. We can do the ceremony another time. Another
0: time. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And then there was another one with Nelson Mandela, which is incredible Yes, Ooh, that you met him. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. I, I've been blessed. I tell you, this was Mr. Mandela's uh, victory tour as we were calling it. He had been released from prison 27 years for just wanting uh, equal justice as a human. They put him in prison. And the thing about Nelson Mandela, he didn't come out bitter. He always said if he had, it would have killed him. So he, forgave his jailers. And that's what kept him alive, knowing that uh, if he could get past this physical pain, he could get on the other side. So he's now in America, victory tour, came to Washington, of course. And uh, the first event I filmed of uh, Mr. Mandela was at the Library of Congress, Uh, sort of an intimate situation where we have a lot of our history, America's history's artifacts is very fitting. And then the very next day, we were going to do a press conference at the South African embassy. And that was very poignant because all through the 80s, I would go there and film uh, when he was in prison under apartheid. There was, I forget what day, maybe Friday perhaps, but there, every week there was a protest. And you'd have activists and celebrities coming to the South African embassy to protest for Nelson Mandela's release. So now I'm finally in this building. And all those years, it was just a monument to racism to me. But now we are physically in the building. And he was doing a press conference and his international press, the press that followed him from South Africa, as well as the American press. But I got there really early and I got a really good spot. And it was a very low key setting. It was just a tabletop interview, a press conference, as we call it, where you see the mics on the table and he's less than six feet from me, what we would call now social distance, right? And this man is such a monumental figure to me. And I've heard him speak on Selma and Birmingham, where I'm from, and the civil rights movement. I just cannot believe I'm sitting there in his presence, less than six feet away. And normally the the press corps, we have the reputation as we should be unbiased and we we don't ask for autographs. I've filmed a lot of famous people. But with this man, I don't care if I get into trouble, I am going to ask for an autograph. (laughs) So what I did the day before, I bought the magazine with him on the cover. I think it was Time Magazine. And then I went to an arts and crafts store and I got a marker with the white ink. I am planning this thing. He's going to get this. I'm going to get this, this autograph, suitable framing, and it's just going to be great. So we do the, the press conference and I'm right there by him. And I whip out my trusty Time Magazine and my, my marker and he stands up and I say, Mr. Mandela, I would love if you would honor me with your autograph. And he turned and smiled, and I had the whole spiel ready for him. You know, I'm from Selma. I've heard you talk about Selma. You know, my name is Selma. We are going to talk for an hour. This is in my mind. So he turns and he smiles, and I am about to extend the, the marker. And aid of his, a young woman, young African-American woman, says, no, we can't do that. We don't have time for that. We have a tight schedule. And he turns, and I'm just getting. He can see it in my face. I am getting ready to say But you, Nelson Mandela, you can't listen to her. (laughs) But I didn't say it. I think he saved me because he said, she is the boss. Whatever she says goes. And I said, okay, I I understand. Thank thank you anyway. And at first, for the longest, I was upset with this young woman because I was going to have a conversation that went longer than an interview. But as I thought about it later, especially on International Women's Day, He empowered this young woman in front of this entire international press corps, because he could easily say to her, stop, I am going to do this. I am Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. He empowered this woman. I'm sure she remembers this in in a different way than I do, but just the fact that Nelson Mandela called her the boss and I listened to what she says. So I kind of, as the years went on, I, I didn't get my autograph, but I think I got something a lot more important that here is this great man empowering this young woman And who knows, I I don't know her name, but I would, in in my mind, in my heart, I always felt that she went on to higher things because she was endorsed by Nelson Mandela.
0: That's amazing. And I love the way that you framed that, that he empowered her when he said that, because it's true. Words are very powerful.
1: Yes. Yes. He could have diminished her, but he,
0: he lifted her up. Which is amazing. My gosh, what an experience you've had. And I know there's many, many more now. Here's my big question: What did you want to be, Reggie, when you grew up? I think I've gotten that question
1: more. <laughs> my dad was a preacher, and I always thought I would follow in his footsteps. I would get when I was ten years old. I was just talking to my sister Frida the other day. We were talking about this. I did this probably, maybe not every Sunday, but a lot of Sundays. You know, you always want to emulate your dad. If he's a preacher, you want to do that. If he's a a cop, you want to be a police officer. I would get a little table and I would gather all of my neighborhood friends and I would get the family Bible and I would preach a sermon. I would read from the Bible. In fact, Mrs. Patterson, my mother's uh, friend next door, next door neighbor, just like family, she would pull her chair on her front porch to listen to me. Wow. I didn't know this until one time I, she called, Mrs. Patterson called my mother and she said, Mrs. Salma, I just want to tell you, your son is in the front yard and he is preaching. Like I've never heard an adult preach before, <laughs> oh my God. but I did not go that path because uh, I just felt I could do more through the media, telling my story that way. So my message was the same. It's all about uplifting, you know, especially now during the pandemic, we see We've witnessed so much loss. And, and if you've had that that loss, you've suffered it, you're afraid, you're depressed, you're worried about your future. I think that my message of motivation and inspiration is what we need. I can humbly say that. I've done that my whole life. I've spoken this way. So I've just carried it now into this next phase after CNN.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and who, or I mean, it could be more than one person has influenced you the most in your upbringing, would you say? My mother and my father, of
1: course, uh, my two grandmothers, I believe in the ancestors. It's all about who raised you and, and who came before you. I've also been influenced by some of the people that I've covered. Uh, John, Lewis, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, who was on that bridge that he was the first one to get attacked by the Alabama state troopers. If you watch that footage, he has a white trench coat and he almost died because they hit him with such a force uh, on his skull. We didn't call it concussions back then, but I'm sure that's what he had. And uh, he said he almost died. And I was able in my career center to speak to him, telling him my story. And he really appreciated that. So a lot of people like that, my former college communications teacher, my professor, Dennis Morgan, who was the first African-American reporter on the air in Birmingham, Alabama. And he uh, retired from TV and wanted to give back. And he was my professor at Miles College. And he pushed me because I think he saw something in me. I think he saw himself in me and he pushed me. He would always say, uh, you're special, but I'm going to rely on you harder than I do the other kids because I know what you have inside of you. So I I came from a very close community in Birmingham. It takes a village was not a a slogan. It was how we were all raised. I was blessed. I still am blessed to have had people in my life who have uh, supported me and uplifted me and, and have taken their time with me.
0: That's incredible, Reggie. That's incredible. And I mean, now throughout the years, I mean, you had mentioned that you grew up in the civil rights era. What was that like? Because I know, like, I cannot imagine. What was that like at that time? Because like, to me, it just feels, me reading, you know, history books and all that stuff, like, it feels so far away. And, you know, when I hear you say that you lived through that, like, I just can't even process. What was that like?
1: You know, my childhood had a lot of domestic terrorism in it, because that's what it was. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, where four little girls were killed by the Ku Klux Klan, right? Denise McNair lived one street over from us. So when we found out that she was killed, and I was in the first grade, death hadn't really become a part of your, you know, when you're young, you your parents are alive, probably your grandparents, your aunt and uncles, but now. Uh, We're told that one of our playground classmates was killed in a bomb, in a terrorist attack. So there was anger throughout our community and also fear that if you can go to church, and we were church-going people, we went to Sunday school. These four little girls were killed while attending Sunday school. So that really touched my heart. The fire hoses, I had cousins who attended that march. It was kind of like the people's, young people's march that uh, Dr. King was inspired by Gandhi because they felt young people would put a different look to the nation. You know, adults were arrested too, but there's something about young teenagers being fire hosed, having police dogs on them while they're protesting just for rights. That's the thing. We were just protesting to go to vote. We were protesting to, to eat at a lunch counter or not to sit getting choked up on the back of, a, of the bus. So these things were a part of my childhood. and. But it was also a part of our dedication to get beyond this. We're not going to let them win. That's what my parents and and all of my friends' parents always preached. We're not inferior. We're going to win. And we're going to win fair and square. That's what my mom used to always say. We're going to win. And when we win, we're going to win fair and square. So it was legalized racism that did not defeat us. We went on to, to have great lives and... Racism is still a part of this fabric of this country, as we know. We came a very long way,
0: right? And like, it's crazy to think. And thank you so much for sharing that, because I know it's never easy to talk about the moments that weren't so fun in our lives, you know. But to see how far things have come, you know. Don't get me wrong; there's still a lot of work to do. A lot of work, without, without a doubt. But fast forward to 2008, when the first African American president came into office. Like, mm. did you cover that?
1: I did. I oh did. my
0: gosh. Oh, you <laughs> got to talk about that. Though. That is, oh yeah. my God, that's amazing. I was there
1: in that 20 degree temperature. And that's the thing. The inaugurations are always in Washington, DC, January 20th. It's the coldest day of the year. It like it's, it's like some contract. It has to be the coldest day of the year. It's a 20 hour day. It's a 20 hour day because you're filming for the early shows, you know, the seven o'clock AM shows. So my day would start, I would rise at 2.30, 3 o'clock, and uh, we all stayed at the Bureau. I was a, a proud member of the CNN Washington Bureau, and they'd have bunk beds and whatnot, and you would get up and you start your day in this bitter, bitter cold uh, weather because press from all over the world are there, and you want to get in and get a good position. Your position has been marked, but you still want to get in and, and test your equipment out. You don't want any foul-ups happening, mm-hmm. so I covered that. But I have to tell you, I also have a private conversation with Barack Obama.
0: <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. I can't wait. this.
1: This took place uh, when he was Senator Obama, but everybody knew he was going to run for president. And the thing about this, when he was Senator Obama and it was getting close to announce if he was going to throw his hat in the ring to become president, to run for president, everywhere he went, the press followed. And he gave a press conference at the, uh, a speech actually, not a press conference. He spoke at the National Press Club, ironically, just around the corner from the White House. So of course we were all there in all our glory. We took it live, everybody took it live. He's not gonna do it like that. I mean, we all knew that. He's not gonna interrupt a normal speech and say, I'm running for president. He's gonna do it the way he did it with his family and all of this, but still we went. And he gave a great speech. It was always this soaring message. So the, the speech is over and I'm breaking down my gear, my equipment. And i was always very meticulous some of my colleagues would make fun of me and say i was slow <laughs> but i wanted all my cables to go where they went and all the lights so i <laughs> took my time i knew what i was doing i'd done it forever and this really paid off so i'm putting my gear on my cart and there was a little secret that all the camera crews in washington know if you did a a uh an event at the national press club you go through the kitchen and you would take the freight elevator down because you didn't stop you just went right to the first floor and you were on your way so I'm getting ready to, uh, to do that. Freight elevator comes, and I push the button for the first floor. And just as the elevator door is about to close, I hear that unmistakable voice. Uh, young man, can you hold that door? <laughs> <laughs> and I put my leg, my arm, I am not gonna let that door close, okay? Because that's Barack Obama. <laughs> and he gets on with his staff, uh, maybe two people, and he says, thank you for holding that door. And I say, of course, you're welcome. And obviously he can see I'm with CNN. I have my camera and all my lights and everything. And he asked me, how did I think he did on this speech? I mean, this man will go down in history as one of the world's greatest, greatest speakers. And it wasn't a joke. He really wanted to know how he did. And you know how they always tell you to when when called upon to have that elevator speech in case you need it for some famous person or somebody you're trying to get a job from or whatever is that famous 30 second elevator speech well all i could think <laughs> to say was i think he did great <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed and his staff laughed and he said okay make sure you tell your boss at cnn that i said to give you a raise and once again we all laughed and the elevator eventually went down to the first floor and he said, thank you for the encouragement, young man. And I said, sir, thank you for yours. And he got off the elevator and I like to say, and he walked into history by becoming America's first black president.
0: That's so incredible. That's so incredible. That just gave me chills. Oh my God, that's so so amazing. And when he
1: was sworn in, as I say, uh, there's always a tradition when you, uh, American president is sworn in, they have the the cannon, brigade and they shoot the cannons, the ceremonial cannons. And I say, I was so proud. I don't know what was
0: beating louder. Those cannons are my heart. I just got chills again, because I can just, as you were saying, your parents were, you know, your mom was saying, we're going to win fair and square. Like right there, you witnessed that. Which I, I thought th- about them. In fact, I said a prayer. I said, we did it to both
1: of them. Oh. Uh, my father was looking down on, on us from heaven. My mom was still alive, but I think they both knew.
0: Oh, absolutely! Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. And thank, thank you me. so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing. You know, you've been through so much, and you're so positive, and like your energy is just so amazing, Reggie. Truly, I love it so, so much. And thank you, Pam. The, of course, and the fact that you've got been able to pivot and go into and see all these events live, like transformative historical figures that you've spoken to and the really amazing thing is just like at the end of the day they're just human yeah right the dolly that's the
1: theme with obama it wasn't sarcastic he wanted to know because i was a cameraman and he thought maybe i might have some insight he's actually asking me uh how we did and that's the theme i've kind of had with most of uh, these iconic figures they're just people and i think they take that in with them. Of course, you have to have some ego if you think you can lead people, right? But they keep that, that human touch within their soul. They, they don't lose it. And I think it, it transfers into their persona, their public persona.
0: Well, it's so crazy because, you know, when you think of like the Dalai Lama, you would never think he'd be asking you about it. his opinion on his Chuck Taylor is like, I would never think he even knew what that was, you know, exactly, I, exactly floating in the air somewhere. And then, like, and then, and then like President Obama to think like he too is human and he's asking for feedback when like literally you watch him and he's probably like the greatest speaker I've ever seen in my entire life Same. And then, that he still asks for feedback. And then Mother Teresa, who's just, she's a saint, but she's trying to escape to go out and save the world, you know, just like these incredible, Nelson Mandela who empowered through those words. Like, it's just so remarkable to me, you know, what you've been able to experience and those life lessons. And I can assure you, and and I'm sure that this comes across to you too, that like, these people are just human and like, how inspiring must it have been to be where you were sitting, watching all this happen? Yes incredible throughout throughout your 30 years and that's yeah,
1: a seat to history I mean I never took it lightly I always felt that and my old news director Wendell Harris at WVTM and Channel 13 uh, NBC Philly, where I got my start he would always say that he didn't feel smarter than his neighbor but he sure got a better view
0: that's amazing and you've stayed with cnn for 30 years yeah
1: 32 years 32 32
0: years so how did you shift from the initial station that you started at and get into cnn you kind of talked about it a little bit but i think i mean because you got like the prime time cameraman position did you just jump into that from the very beginning well, that was the position that was open, or did you kind of climb your way up? It was uh,
1: Jim Jim Schultz, who was the first bureau chief at CNN in Washington. Just a great man. He passed a few years ago. We became great friends, traveled all over the world. I'd been at CNN doing what we call general assignment, which is it's not very general if you're at the, the Capitol, or the Pentagon, uh, you know, the State Department. is pretty impressive. They all are. I'd been there for a few months, and he called me into his office, and you think, oh, man, it's kind of like got a... And called into the principal's office vibe, but not, not really. And he said, you know, I've heard a lot of great things about you. Everybody around here really loves your work ethic, uh, your creativity, and you're just a great uh, a person. And I want to know if you would like to join the White House Press Corps unit. I'm speechless because if you're a cameraman in Washington, that is the ultimate position. Like I say, they all are. Because if you're covering a, a, the Congress or... State Department or whatever, that's, that's very important, but it's the honor. And it doesn't matter if you believe in that uh, person who's in the Oval Office politics. You're there to cover the office, this office of, of Abraham Lincoln and John Kennedy. It just gives you chills. So, of course, I said yes, and we hit the road running. The first trip was to Ohio, a domestic trip, and uh, some of these legendary cameramen from the other networks. But I have to be honest, we were the new kids on the block. And uh, I can remember a high-level official from NBC saying, this CNN, and at this point, CNN is two years old. He said, Reggie, you're a bright kid. I want to tell you something. This CNN thing, it is not going to work. There's only three networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS. And that's all the people want, and that's all (laughs) there is. Well, I think he was off by 40 years, you know, seeing his... (laughs) Still growing strong. If I could uh, tell you, Ted Turner, such an iconic figure in American history, a visionary. Now, when I was growing up, this official was right. There were only those three networks, plus the PBS station. And no one ever thought you would want to look at TV for 24 hours. I mean, who would want to do that? You got to go to bed. (laughs) That's how the world thought. It's midnight. You got to go to bed. Ted Turner thought that, no, if I gave people news, sports, and weather 24 hours a day. They're going to watch it. And he was right. Now, just think about it. You can turn on the TV. If you get up at three o'clock in the morning to get a glass of water, you can turn on the TV. I don't know how many hundreds of stations are there, but he was the first to think that it's not just the three networks. It's people wanting knowledge. And at the CNN 40th anniversary reunion here in Washington, D.C., at the National Press Club, the same place where President Obama spoke. And I've I've only had one conversation with Ted Turner. People thought, you know, he would be up all the time. And that's another thing. Every time he would come to Washington, I would be out of town or on assignment. So I never got a chance to meet him. So that's fine because he's at the head table. It's a banquet type setting. And everybody's coming to talk to him. And I kind of let everybody do that. I just wanted to have my moment. So I walk up to him. And I say, uh, Mr. Turner, my name is Reggie Selma. I'm a cameraman from CNN. And I just wanted to tell you, thank you for giving me the opportunity to travel all over the world covering history. And he looked at me and said, we did it together, brother. Wow. Can you imagine? And that just melted my heart. He didn't say, well, yeah, of course, I'm smarter than anybody. He said, we did it together, brother.
0: I love that. I love that, and now, like throughout your years and your experiences, what would be the biggest piece of advice, maybe someone looking to get into the media world or just in life in general that you would give?
1: I would say it is it's almost easier now when I got into it, you had to have a TV station, a network around you now, wherever my phone is, <laughs> this thing that's your camera crew, that's your producer, that's your reporter, you go on YouTube. And you can see some really amazing things. In fact, you cannot watch a nightly newscast where the nightly newscast producers, reporters, have not used someone's cell phone footage.
0: Mm-hmm. And I,
1: I would dare say one of the most powerful pieces of video that has ever been seen was the young lady filming George Floyd being murdered. Mm-hmm. That young lady, just as a cameraman, you know, besides the the significance of what she did. She wasn't shaky. She wasn't talking. She held those, that camera for those eight minutes and 46, 46 seconds. And that moved the world. Mm-hmm. Cell phone footage, not a camera crew. Camera crew didn't wasn't there. Citizens were there. So I would say you still have to perfect your craft. You still have to have a, a written message in your head or in your heart, what you want to do. Work hard at it ask questions. I was telling this to uh, one of the first speeches that I gave was to a, a, a school. I said, take out your phone, go interview your grandmother, go interview your mom, ask your mom how she met your dad. You know, I said, that's how you become a journalist, because that's what was uh, told to me. Max Robinson, who was the first African-American network news anchor on ABC in the 80s, told me in an interview, with my school, we went. he was speaking at North Carolina A&T and Miles College along with other black universities throughout the South and Northeast went there. It's a huge uh, uh, banquet. I kind of finagle myself. This is when I knew I was really good. And you made me think about this. Uh, my professor, Dennis Morgan, we had a, a radio show and he said, go and just grab as much sound as you can from Max Robinson. So I had my little college microphone and tape recorder that i got gotten from Radio Shack. And uh, my good buddy, Erskine Brantley, we walked down past all these uh, other local camera crews. And I said to an aide of his, he was on the stage, he hadn't been introduced yet. I said, I would like to interview Max Robinson. And someone from the university said, no, no, like get away from here, young boy, you know. So I go back to Dennis Morgan, my professor, and I told him, I said, he won't let me interview him. He told me that it's not my time. Like there's an interview after he speaks with the local press in North Carolina, and perhaps I can ask a question in there. Well, we didn't have time to do that. We had to get on our little school bus and drive back to Alabama. So I'm telling Dennis Morgan this, and he says, "Hmm, maybe you don't have what it takes after all. You took that no pretty easy." Hmm. Buddy, he said that, and I just I said to myself, "Okay." So I thought for a second, and I said, "Erskine, follow me." So I go up and I get a napkin from the someone's table, and I write on this napkin. My name is Reggie Selma, I'm with the Miles College Communications Department. If you could give me thirty seconds right after your speech while you were on stage, I would appreciate it mm. and I didn't give it to someone from the school on aid. I walked behind the stage, I pulled on his pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I gave him this note with the, the napkin. He looked at it, folded it, put it in his pocket. And he said, like, he enjoyed that gumption that I had. So now I'm elated. So he finishes his great speech. And I didn't go back to sit with my class at the uh, at their table. Had my microphone. And as soon as he finished, and somehow I could tell the president of the university, like he was trying to block me or something. So my buddy Erskine kind of blocked him. And I got on stage And I said, here's the 30 second interview, Mr. Robinson. And he said, go ahead, young man. I asked him, how did he get into the business and yada, yada. And one thing I always remember, he said, be curious. Any person that wants to be in the media or journalism, they have to have a curiosity. That was the bite that I used on our radio station. And of course, everybody was just high-fiving me and hugging me. So you made me think I had forgotten about that story, but Max Robinson played a huge part because he saw that I was eager because maybe he saw the the president shooing me away early, I don't know. But for me to sneak up behind him and yank on his pants leg (laughs) and hand him a note, maybe that reminded him of himself, I don't know. But that was my first interview, first big interview with somebody other than my classmates.
0: amazing. That's amazing. And with that now, with your years of experience and everything that you've been through, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? Just keep at it. Don't listen to the haters. Don't listen to the haters because that's the thing
1: you will find. A lot of people will find, and I've seen this, I call it the old world, 2020 with the pandemic, we were all forced to reinvent, reflect, evaluate ourselves, our relationships. And I found my circle, it got smaller. Mm -hmm. Now, I still love my friends, but you could tell in that old life, the old world, as I call it, you had to put up with a lot of stuff to get along with people that perhaps you didn't like. Now we have this new wisdom, this new knowledge, because if you're at home for a year, I mean, I know we baked a lot of banana bread (laughs) (laughs) and some people learn new languages but if you are forced to be with yourself, and I'm blessed, I have a, a beautiful, loving wife, but you know what I mean? There are times when you're still alone in your thoughts. And unlike when we were working, you're going through traffic, you're talking to people, you're dealing with people. Now you are just with yourself. And I saw that a lot of things, a lot of people, still friendly with them, but if they were not there to love and support me and encourage me, they're not a part of my, my heart. And I think a lot of people realize that caring, leaving that in the old world, family, friends, colleagues, you Mm -hmm. have this new power. Because my Lord, we have surprised, we have survived something that has not happened in a hundred years. We've never been tested like this. And to come out of that on the other side, you are special, you are strong. You're stronger than you thought. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you've learned lessons you didn't know you had. So I just feel my older self would tell my newer self, you love and you are kind to everyone, but you value the
0: people that value you. Amen. And Now, Reggie, you're up to some amazing things in the world now, post CNN and your motivational speaker and all of this amazingness. So can you tell us like sort of what's up in your world? What's coming next? Because I know you're working on a podcast, which is yes, so exciting. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So tell yes, us what, what's up in Reggie World. An Inspired Life, Motivational and
1: Inspirational Stories. That's the name of my new podcast. I'm working on it with a an amazing uh, marketing a legend, Wendy Stevens and her excellent guerrilla PR team, someone who believed in me. And we are working on a podcast and our podcast will be for people who feel depressed. They've lost hope. Perhaps they've lost a job or a career. They've been taken off course. My podcast is for you because together we're going to lift each other up. And I promise I will try every day in this podcast to do so. And we're going to get back to that love once again. We're going to get back to that love again. And I think it's going to be a deeper love because now we see how much we missed. I mean, I have missed, and I'm sure you can attest to this, the human touch. Mm -hmm. I'm a hugger. I've always been. I'm a country boy from Alabama. (laughs) I love to hug. And who would have ever thought we could live without hugging our loved ones for a year? Mm -hmm. So I just feel... That is my mission now with my, my podcast. I
0: think people are going to like it. I think so, too. And post-COVID world, I'm sure you'll get back into the speaking world and, yep. and keep continuing to be amazing. Amazing, Reggie. Where can everybody find you and your awesome self? Well, you can go to
1: AskReggieSelma.com, just like my name, AskReggieSelma.com. That will be wow. the site of my podcast and all the information. You can also go to my website, regiselma.com, if you want to see some of my speeches from Tokyo and and London and Amsterdam and Ireland. Ah, I loved Ireland. That's on there as well. So uh, I'm really excited about this new chapter. And once again, I had to reinvent myself. When when COVID hit, no one was going uh, to in-person speeches. And we've all survived and thrived through Zoom. And I think that's the thing that's, that's here to stay. I, I think we will still at some point get back on stage, but to come into someone's home the way we're doing now, I think that's here to stay. So once again, we've learned new wisdom, and I think that's going to uh, help us make it.
0: Amen, Reggie. You are such a legend, truly. And uh, thank all. you. Such an honor to have you here today. and just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. And I can't wait for your podcast to launch. I'm going to keep everyone updated on that for sure. Thank you, Pam. I am honored to be on your great show. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode.